Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand, may your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. And we all know what taw is. Yeah, last letter of the alphabet. Alphabet. Uh, let's see here. We are in... Oh, wait. We got, Maybe do we have prayer requests? I don't remember if I wrote anything down or not. Uh, let's see here. Yes. Christine Race, who attended online, died. Uh, she was bedridden. She apparently was online for years. And uh, she never emailed. I never... I feel terrible about it, but I never knew that she was there. And, uh, you know, I... Been bothering me all week. I just, you know, I don't know that somebody's out there, and then I hear that she's died. And so, uh, uh, just pray for the family of uh, Christine Race, and uh, just, I, I don't know what to say about that. I just, you know, I wish that I would hear from people that uh, attend, and, you know, but some people don't want to bother you, you know, some people, it just, everybody's different in life, and apparently she was very quiet, but I just, I feel bad that I never got in this life to, uh, to meet her. Mm, just it, I don't know why. All week long, it's kind of just hung right. with well, me. Just percentage-wise, there's so many people that we've not met. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. Well, not meeting them, but knowing that they're there, right. and, I uh, agree that and too. just right. it's right. And just disturbing to me that uh, I never had a chance to, you know, say hi. Yeah. Um, we're in Two Thessalonians. We're starting the book of Two Thessalonians. I think I'm going to skip that book from now on. Just after last week and. They're, last few weeks have been kind of yeah they, you know their their doctrine is poor they're not dispensationalists and that throws everything off and then you know they just uh, they just I think I'm going to do something different maybe I'll get an Acts commentary and just read the most recent Acts commentary every week or something I don't know uh, just to start us out but for right now we're in two Thessalonians it's a new book it's uh, uh, you know, obviously a backup or a, a follow-up to uh, 1 Thessalonians, and um, it, uh, chapter 2 of it is, I, you know, again and again people email me about the rapture, and I've got friends that, uh, you know, they, they email me about various things that people are saying, and I don't know how people can get this particular issue wrong. I, I honestly don't know how they can do it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is so very clear in the timeline of what's going on. Um, you know, somebody emailed me a week ago and he said, is the uh, restrainer actually the Holy Spirit? Then when we get there, I'll talk about that. You know, is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the church? He said, could it be an angel? Well, you know, you could say it could be, but a, a restrainer, an angel is not going to be restraining for 2,000 years with the same uh, ability that the Holy Spirit will. And this is something you want to take the most logical thing when you're evaluating that particular part of it. But as far as the timeline itself, regardless of like who the restrainer is, the timeline itself does not leave any option for anything other than a pre-tribulation rapture. Now obviously people will use the Gospels and the book of Revelation and they will uh, make their 
decision based on those things. And that's not the way that you handle your theology in dealing with the rapture. The rapture, the rapture was introduced by Paul. It's uh, explained by Paul. He gives you his information. And if you deviate from that, you can make anything say anything. But to take your rapture timing uh, and your, you know, I'm talking about church age uh, eschatology out of the book of Revelation, when we're not going to be here for that. It, it's so abundantly clear. And once again, if you take what Jesus said, which is mirroring what is said in the book of Revelation and say, well, that's pertaining to the rapture and that's pertaining to the church, you've made an error in theology because Jesus is not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. Now, obviously, some of the things Jesus says about the church and what will happen in the church are there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll see that. John is a little different. But when he's talking about those things, those particular issues uh, in Matthew 24, for example, he's not talking to the church. He's talking to the people of Israel. He's talking to them about their future. Mix those two things together, the church and that's all you get is chaos. You get very, very illiterate theology. And so uh, remember that as you're reading, especially, you know, when you're reading the book of Acts, for example, you want to read it as a descriptive account. If you start saying, well, this is telling us to do this or this is setting a precedent, now I I don't want to divert too far onto that thought, but there is what is normative. Eventually in the book of Acts, you will see things repeating and that becomes a normative thing, okay? But to just take an account and say, well, this is the way it works, when there's two other accounts that say the same thing, we'll say baptism, for example, and they say exactly different things. You know, this one says that you have to repent, be baptized, and you'll get the Holy Spirit. This one says that they believed, and then John and Peter had to come up from Jerusalem to Samaria. They put their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, and then in Acts chapter 10, that's pick-and-choose theology. But there is what is normative. As things are occurring in the book of Acts and they keep occurring, you can say this is a normative thing. So I don't want to get too far into the descriptive prescriptive without at least acknowledging that there is a normative sense about some things in there. But for the most part, when you are reading Acts, you want to say this is a descriptive account. It's just telling us something about what happened. It's showing us how the church was established and that's it. It's not telling you to do anything in particular. It's not prescribing you to do anything. And so you got to think when you're reading the Bible, who is being spoken to? What is the context of what they're being spoken to? Under what dispensation are they being spoken to? Etc. And if you don't do those things, you will have error in your thinking. Anyway, um, we're going to get started. Go ahead and... Uh, yes. Oh yeah, we got to pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, share in your word. And we're very excited about getting into 2 Thessalonians. And uh, it's a short book. We thank you that uh, we'll be through it in no time at all. And uh, we'll be on to another wonderful part of your book. But it is an important book. It's something that teaches us things that we need to know for our own, you know, our own happiness, our own uh, security within our thinking and so help us to handle it rightly and to think clearly on what is being presented so that uh, our doctrine will be proper and that you will be glorified in how we conduct our lives in your presence because of the words of Paul in 
2 Thessalonians. Ultimately, they are your words being spoken through him. So we need to treat it as such. And we thank you for that. And we praise you and we love you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. One quick question. Yes. Is there anything that they should know about, about John's memorial service on Saturday? Is well, anything going to be like, like telecasted? not going to be streamed. Okay, all right. Uh, Burke says that John's uh, funeral, Burke's son's funeral, is not going to be live streamed, so we can't get that for you, but uh, that'll be uh, Sunday morning, I'm sorry, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, and so uh, just maybe keep the Carrico family in prayer, because obviously it's going to be a tough day for them and for everybody that knew John, so there you go. Okay, start off, no preamble. No, I, I got one. I'll no, just, okay. it's part of it. Here we go. Okay. Um, 2 Thessalonians, ch chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Theolo uh, Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. This one, the difference is Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, to the church of Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So I kind of got an introduction that goes along with this but it's not a long one. <laughs> Welcome to the book of 2 Thessalonians. It is comprised of 47 verses. It's not that long. It's a short little book, and so it will take us, and this is when I typed my daily commentary. It'll take us one day at a time, just as the dawn of each new day, only one and one-half months to analyze it. It'll be a little bit longer because we're going a couple verses of study, and then we should be done in you know, a couple months. But it is hoped that you will be blessed as each day unfolds with the marvelous insights into this beautiful epistle from the mind of God and through the hand of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul begins by introducing himself with, along with Silvanus, which he is also known as Silas in the Bible. Now, I don't know if the texts are different or if they just called him Silas, but uh, my guess is that the Alexandrian text says Silas, and that's why they put it the, in uh, that Bible. The footnote but, says uh, Silvanus. Okay, it's there good. you go. So Silvanus and Silas, same person, and Timothy. Uh, the letter bears Paul's name, and there is no valid reason to suggest that he is not the true author. However, he leaves off the customary term apostle, which he uses in many of his other epistles because he was already well known to those at the church. He just sent them a letter. He's been visiting them a couple times. And, you know, so there's no need for him to say, I'm an apostle. They already know that. So he left that off of this particular salutation. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, he was already well known to those at the church. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the letter is writ written to a Gentile-led church. And I would be more specific and say that it is a son of anybody? Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Oh, um. Ham. Japheth. Japheth, that's right, not Ham. Ham is on your sandwich. He's from the line of Japheth. The Thessalonians and all of Paul's letters that are addressed to people groups are addressed to sons of Japheth. And that goes back, as I've said, I might as well uh, divert right now before we get into this and take you to Genesis chapter Genesis chapter 9. Where are we? And it says here, um, uh, Noah spoke to him. Okay, it says, um, uh, you know, Ham did something perverted to 
his father, okay? And people debate what it is, you know, people say that it was a homosexual act, or some people say that he just went and looked on his father, or, you know, some people say he slept with his, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, his mother, um, because, un yeah, uncovering um, the... Uh, yeah, the nakedness, you know, uh, would imply in the book of Leviticus, and that's a sketchy thing to do, is to take an account from Leviticus and then to say, well, that applies here. It's a word that can mean various things, but whatever. He did something to his father that got his father very upset. And so what did he do? He didn't curse his own son, Ham. He cursed Canaan because um, the Lord had already blessed Ham. It said, um, uh, where is it? Uh, anyway, uh, he had blessed them. And uh, when he blessed them, when they got off of there, it says, um, uh, sign of the covenant. Uh, he, all flesh will be cut off. The uh, rainbow. Uh, now these were, in, okay, anyway, they'd already been blessed. He had uh, uh where is that? By he did a sacrifice. God spoke to Noah and said, "Surely the lifeblood." Um, God remembered Noah. Anyway, um, I don't want to spend all day looking for something that I should have prepared for. But anyway, they were blessed, and uh, because of that, you know, he he uh, uh, made the uh, sacrifice, and the Lord smelled it, and he said, "I'll never uh, uh, wipe out the." Uh, where is that? Um, uh, from the hand of. Just wish I could find that so I could show you. But anyway, they've been blessed. He can't, you know, Noah is not going to curse somebody that God has blessed. And so, um, and you can go back and watch that sermon from uh, uh, Genesis, and it's there. I've got it all laid out. But anyway, the important thing that I'm getting at is that he cursed Canaan, Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And then here it is. He's just blessed Shem. Shem gets the spiritual blessing. And then he says, May God enlarge Japheth, which obviously that happened. The sons of Japheth are all over the world, and they are the ones that settled on the coastlines and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and may he, meaning Japheth, may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now, that's a prophecy. It's very hard to figure out what he's saying until you get through the Bible and you realize what's going on is that he said, may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. The tent of Shem is the spiritual blessing upon his son. It is the blessing that uh, uh, the, obviously the Messiah comes through Shem, etc. They are the ones that, they are the stewards of the oracles of God. The prophets spoke through the sons of Shem, specifically Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, who is Israel. Uh, that is the line where all of the, uh, you know, the, the inner workings of God are. But then uh, they disobeyed the Lord, okay? They did not receive Jesus. And so what happened is the spiritual banner went from Shem to Japheth, okay? Canaan is cursed. He's not going to be in that particular line. They went to the son of uh, Noah, who is Japheth, and that carried on in Paul's epistles, which carry us through the church age. The church age is a Gentile entity, a Gentile-led entity. That doesn't mean that there are not sons of Ham in the church. That does not mean that there are not Jews and, Mus uh, uh, not Muslims, uh, you know, people from the line of Shem outside of Israel in the church. They are. But the spiritual banner, the main line of people is the um, 
uh, sons of Japheth, okay? He is dwelling in the tents of Shem. What that means is that Shem has the spiritual banner, Japheth gets it, and then the spiritual banner goes back to Shem after the rapture of the church, okay? I don't know if you can see that, but this is a tent, this is a tent, and in the middle is Japheth. He is dwelling in the tents of Shem, okay? And so uh, that is the spiritual banner that uh, has um, uh, come upon Japheth, and all of Paul's letters are written to sons of Japheth, okay? From there, and this is not to discount anybody else, there are theologians from Africa, there are theologians from Asia, but predominantly, over the past 2,000 years, the spiritual banner has been carried by far more Japheth than anybody else. They are the ones that have studied the Word of God. They are the ones that have compiled the Word of God. They are the ones that have translated the Word of God. They are the ones that have sent forth the Word of God. And that has been going on for 2,000 years. The line of Japheth specifically. They are the ones that are going out to the sons of Ham and the sons of Shem and telling them the gospel. That is 99% the case. It's not to diminish anybody else that is from another line. It's just simply the way that it was ordained by God. It was foreseen. Noah prophesied it, and so when you see these uh, churches, Thessalonica, Corinth, Galatia, um, whatever, Ephesus, and um, uh, Philippi, they're all sons of Japheth. They are all directed from Paul through there. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. The message is to the Gentile church. Anyway, there you go with that. That's just a little background so you understand what's going on, why the, uh, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, why the church is a predominantly Gentile entity, etc., etc. Okay, it's much more involved than that. I've done an entire study several times on this board and probably during the Romans and maybe one Corinthian study. And you can go back and watch all those and figure out which one it is. Just look for uh, me writing on the board and you'll see that. But so, so what do you call the people that go beyond that, that they have written the book translated the book to something like that like for the United States or uh, Northern Europe or how, how does that where do they fit in where oh I'm a son of Japheth okay. the British people that came over here are sons of Japheth okay right, right. so it's still the same predominantly the same people right. that are doing this and once again we've got you know Jewish pastors in America people sure. that have been converted and they're great scholars and theologians and all that but I'm talking about the predominant line mm -hmm. you would be a son of Japheth because right. of where you're from and so it's easy to determine if you go back and you look at your genealogies. And that's why the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 is so vital to understanding what is going on in the world, what is happening you know, in the future. It's all laid out in Genesis 10. So when you see this name in Genesis 10 and you see it in the book of Revelation, you can say, well, I see the connection that goes all the way back and why these things are happening. So Genesis chapter 10 is one of the most important uh, uh, studies that you can do in understanding those things. But if you just knew who the sons of Japheth are and look at who has been carrying the spiritual banner, you will see this, okay? There's nothing said in that to diminish any other people group, any other person that is a great, you know, studier of God's word and theologian. There, there's nothing to diminish them. It's just that predominantly it is sons of Japheth and more just as there are Jews and, you know, uh, uh, Arabs and Japanese in the church, it is predominantly Japheth, okay, that has been the one that has carried the church along all these years, okay? So th there's nothing to diminish anybody else. It's just the right. way that it is, 
Okay, it's a Gentile-led church, but there are lots of non-Gentiles in the church. We got one just walked in a little while ago. Okay, that's just the way it is. There's nothing demeaning on any cast of people. And the reason why I'm so adamant about this is because, um, you know, the, the slave traders used to say, well, they're sons of Ham, and so they don't, they're not important. Right. Okay, right. and, right. you know, there was a, a group of people, and not all people that, you know, had slaves felt that way, but there were just people that tried to use the Bible to justify what they did. And that's just not an appropriate way of doing that. Okay, it's just there are certain things that trend in the Bible, and one of them is that right now Japheth is who it was directed to. Okay, that's just the way it is. Okay, so, um, uh, oh, we're going on now. Um, uh, Sylvanus and Timothy were Paul's companions at Thessalonica. Burke, did you have something? You looked like you were looking for something. Or, no, I was no. looking for what you were looking for. Okay, anyway, I, I explain it in the, uh, uh, for the blessing, it might have been before they got on the ark too. I don't remember. I just, I, and I don't want to spend all day looking for something that it just came to my mind and I thought it'll come up and it didn't. So I'm not going to just. It said all the earth, the blessed on you and all the earth. Okay. Okay, and that could be, I don't know, I just, there's there's a, a connection that I made, yeah. and it, I, it's it's in those earlier Genesis sermons, but on the top of my head right now, I can't remember 800, 900 sermons material, it's just, you know, this brain can't handle this week's sermon, so, um, yeah, um, let's see here, okay, so they were Paul's companions at Thessalonica, and he included them in his opening greetings as they were still with him at this point in his ministry. They are both noted together in Acts 17 and 18. I absolutely love Acts, Acts chapter 17. It is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It's just such an exciting chapter. Um, right now we're in Acts 20, and I'm enjoying it very much. Um, but every morning I would just get up so excited in Acts chapter 17. I was just excited. Now, what I'm typing right now is exciting because Paul is on the beach. This is a couple days away from being released, but Paul is on the beach with the elders of Ephesus. He went to Miletus. He skipped Ephesus. He landed at Miletus, and he sent for them to come down to him. And that was to not get bogged down with time at Ephesus because he wanted to get to Jerusalem. But his words to the Ephesian elders are marvelous. He's explaining his heart towards them. He's explaining his heart towards the gospel. And, you know, I just typed the one today where it says, savage wolves are going to come in among you. And that'll be finished tomorrow. There's two verses that speak about what's going to happen. And it's just so sad, you know, because by the time you get to the book of Revelation, which is not that long after Paul, okay, however long it was, whether it was 40 years or 80 years, it wasn't that long. And they are already a church that is in decline, and Jesus had to rebuke them. So it, anyway, it breaks my heart. And, uh, uh, That's what he said. You're breaking my heart. Yeah, you're breaking my heart, but different context. But yes, he, he did say that to him. You're breaking my heart. I'm willing to go. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and, and uh, you know, be in chains and the whole thing. So um, yeah, just, but it's very heartbreaking how churches turn away. And the commentary that I typed this morning was on exactly that, uh, what happens in churches. And, uh, you know, you have a church that starts out fine. And I'm talking about if their doctrine is good from the beginning. Because some churches just start and their doctrine is already terrible. But if the church starts out and they have good doctrine, okay, like grace, and, you know, you have a couple of ways that it can go downhill is the pastor retires or dies. And, uh, you know, then 
they can't find a pastor and they keep looking and they, it's, nobody seems to fit. And so they take the expedient route and they just hire somebody and say, we can get a better pastor later. That's never going to happen. Once you hire a pastor, he's in there and you're just gonna get used to him and, he's, and the church is gonna go down because of that. And the same thing happens in a seminary. You know, we, we have to have a Hebrew program. The Hebrew guy quit because he gets better pay over at Dallas Theological Seminary and we gotta have a Hebrew guy. And so they hire somebody that is not qualified morally or something. And all of a sudden there's a, a little bit of leaven in the seminary. Then he gets the other uh, professors and they all start, you know, going off track. And it's never intentional. All right, sometimes it is. I mean, one of the examples I gave is somebody's in the church and he's a shark and he doesn't like the pastor. He doesn't like what he teaches, but he's always nice to everybody, you know, like Absalom type of guy. And so he's nice to everybody. He tells everybody how great the pastor is and how uh, spot on his uh, doctrine is. Then they say, well, we ought to hire him. And so he gets into the pulpit and three months later, he's saying things that are completely different than what he had said all along. But the congregation, because they don't read their Bibles, doesn't realize they're being taken down a primrose path. And three years later, they've completely fallen away from the Lord. And it, that's why, again and again, the Bible calls us sheep, is because we're not paying attention. We're willing to just follow blindly, and we go off and do our own thing, and we're not willing to, uh, we're, we're not capable of making decisions that are proper. So it, it, when I read this about how churches fall away from the Lord and here they are within a generation of the Lord having been on the earth and they're falling away so much that he has to completely rebuke them. It, it's heartbreaking. Anyway, um, so they're mentioned in uh, Acts 17 and 18. Silvanus Silas is noted 13 times in Acts 15 through 18. He was a Roman citizen as is seen in Acts 16:37. Despite this, he was also a Jew. So Acts 16:37. I don't remember that verse. I typed it obviously in the past. Whoops, in the past few uh, uh, months. But let's see here. Um, oh yeah, he is the one with Paul in the prison, and it says, "But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison." So obviously he was a Roman citizen. Okay, uh, some scholars say, well, there's no proof of that. Paul could have been speaking in the plural. If he did that, if he said we are uncondemned Romans and he wasn't a Roman and they found out about it, they could have him executed for that, claiming that he was a Roman when he wasn't. Nobody would do that. Okay, that's a silly argument for anybody to even make, but people love to make stuff up as they go in their commentaries. And uh, there is no doubt that Silas, if Paul is going to say we are uncondemned Romans, they are both Romans, okay, they are citizens of Rome. So um, let's see here, uh, yeah, despite this, he was also a Jew. The longer name Silvanus is used of him by Paul in 2 Corinthians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He's probably also the same person referenced by Peter in 1 Peter 5.12, but there's no guarantee of this, okay? That's why I say probably. I'll read you this just so you know what I'm talking about, but 1 Peter 5.12 says, um, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So Silvanus in this epistle is his uh, scribe. He's writing out what Paul is telling him, and he says, I consider him a faithful brother. And that would give you a clue that it is probably the same Silvanus because he was with Paul 
And, you know, Paul is, Peter is supporting Paul's ministry. As a matter of fact, he does explicitly in his next epistle. Okay, so it's a very good guess that Silvanus is the same guy that was with Paul and is now uh, writing out Peter's letter. But there's no proof of that. So, uh, you know, it wasn't an uncommon name. And so you don't want to make the leap that this was definitely that guy. Anyway, um, Timothy is obviously the better known of the two because of his being prominently mentioned throughout the New Testament and especially because two epistles are written to him. So immediately when we think of uh, Timothy, we think of somebody, you know, the name is prominent in the Bible. It's like Joshua. Joshua is a prominent name because the book is named Joshua, okay? There is no book called Moses. There are the books of Moses, obviously, but when you think of Joshua, you think immediately, well, there's a book named after him. Timothy is the same way. He's got two books named after him, plus he is all the way from, I think it was Acts 16. Is that where he came in? Um, yeah, I think it was Acts 16 where he came in to the uh, the scene. And let me see, was that right? Iconium, now they were there, Phrygia. Um, uh, yeah, Acts 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Okay, and so Paul went and had him circumcised and whatever. Um, and, you know, people... That's another thing, is you'll see something in the Bible where Paul does something, like he circumcises somebody, and Paul observes a feast down in Jerusalem, and immediately they say, you must be circumcised, or you must observe the Jewish feasts, which they're not Jewish feasts, by the way, they're feasts of the Lord, but they will say that. They come to wrong conclusions because Paul did something, it assumes that you must do what Paul did. When Paul specifically tells you, you do not have to do these things. He says it explicitly, sometimes two and three and four times. But they will go and they'll say, Paul was an observant Jew. He never didn't observe the law, which is not true because you can get that out of Galatians chapter two. And his writings when he says, I, as when I'm among the Gentiles, it became like the Gentiles and all that. So you've got to be very careful when people give you their arguments that you don't get sucked into what they're saying because, oh, that sounds convincing and the rest of your life you're observing the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and you're, uh, you know, you've got uh, circles running down the side of your hair and you've got a black hat on and you're, uh, it, it's just, some people take things to unbelievably crazy extremes when it is explicit what Paul says and what Paul says in his epistles is what we are to do, okay? So be careful. I was thinking about this earlier. I was back there cleaning the bathroom, and I said to myself, I'm going to say it during the class because I always say it during the class, is I want people to read the Bible, okay? And I was thinking to myself, I know that when I say that, people will say, well, every pastor says that. And so he's just making that point, and they go home and they don't worry about reading their Bible. I'm not saying that because every pastor says that. I'm not saying that because it sounds good to say it during a sermon. I'm saying that because if you don't read your Bible, you have no basis for anything of knowing whether it's true or not, right. nothing. When I say something, you have no basis to say, Charlie Garrett knows what he's talking about. You have no basis to say that because you don't know if what I'm saying is true or not. And the same is true with if I'm making something up or somebody else is making something up. Um, a, a lady emailed me um, a couple days ago and she asked about, um, uh, 
what was it? Um, oh, the covenant in Daniel 9. And uh, he shall confirm a covenant with many for uh, one week, meaning seven years. And I, uh, uh, she said, would you please watch it six minutes or something of this guy? And he gives an analysis. She says, I've heard people say that it means it's a new covenant. People say that it's a renewed covenant. Some people say this, some people say that, blah, 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 blah. And she says, I'm so confused because I listen to all these people and I don't know what's true and what's not anymore. And so I watched a couple minutes of this guy and he immediately, the word that he put up, he said, this word is very clear. It's very, very clear. Uh, it means a new covenant. One, he had the word wasn't even what the, the Hebrew said. It, it was spelled wrong. It was completely wrong. And so he's got that up on the screen and he's talking authoritative. And he said the word Hebrew at least 20 times in two minutes, like he's a specialist in Hebrew. He's got the wrong word up there or a misspelling of it. And he's saying, I, I emailed Arthur Fruchtenbaum, and he's a Messianic Jew, as if that makes any difference at all in the world, okay? I'm not cutting down Fruchtenbaum. I'm saying that he's saying something that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if he's a Jew. It doesn't matter if he's a professor. It doesn't matter if he's a pastor. Those things don't matter. That's an irrelevant statement. He said, I emailed him, and he knows the Hebrew way better than I do. And I thought, well, I hope so. And uh, so he uh, said, and he agrees with me. And it doesn't matter for this conversation, whether it's a new covenant, a renewed covenant, or a stronger covenant, or whatever you want to say. Okay, that's not my point. My point is that he was making a claim, and he said, um, this uh, leaves no doubt that it's a new covenant. The Hebrew leaves no other option, and he says, unless you don't want to follow the rules of Hebrew, which he wasn't doing. If it was a new covenant, it would have said berit, right? I, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, hadashah. Berit is the covenant. Berit Hadashai would have said covenant. No, it doesn't say that. So you can't say it means it's absolutely a new covenant because there is a word for new covenant. There are other words that you can use. And I gave her a list of them. You know, I gave her some examples from Genesis here. The Lord made a covenant. He cut a covenant. Okay, karat, he cut a covenant. There are words that are used to imply things in association with a covenant. This one isn't. Okay, and it's a word that means to make strong, stronger, prevail. It's the word gabar, okay? Um, and it has various meanings depending on the context. The use of it, uh, in other words, the morphology of it, is it first person, is it second person, is it, you know, this and that, is only used that one time in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 9, 27, I think, or 24, whatever verse it was. And uh, so you can't really compare it with other uses of the same morphology. So that doesn't help. And so I translated it for her. I said, this is my translation. And then I said, I emailed Sergio with just the words without any, I said, I don't want any presuppositions from you. I don't want you to do any study on it. I want you to translate these words. Three words, four words, I think. I have no idea where they're from. Okay, well, there you go. And so he gave me his translation. And I said, now you can see his thinking. I said, he's basing his thinking on modern Hebrew. And I knew that. I knew that you didn't know where it was from. But the modern Hebrew is going to basically follow in intent. It, it'll be different. There are different uh, meanings to words nowadays. But I just wanted him to give me a modern Hebrew perspective of that. And he, Sergio just said for the people online, he didn't know where I got those words from. I just wanted him to translate it with his knowledge of Hebrew as of today in Israel. And he gave it. And it meant only a existing covenant. That's all it means to him. Okay, and so I gave her my analysis of it, and I said, here, 
And I said, one way or another, it really doesn't matter in what the question is, and here's why. But uh, the whole point that I'm making is that you have to be well-versed in the Bible to not get caught into error. And if somebody is going to stand up on a stage and he's going to give you one word, one word from the Hebrew, and he's standing there, you know, he doesn't have any notes. He's one of these guys with this thing on. He's talking into a microphone. He's walking around acting authoritative. And that one word is wrong. I said, that taints everything that he says after that. But the people in that congregation are never going to take the time to go check. They trust him implicitly. They're not going to go home and check this. Okay. And so where do you go with that? Unless you are willing at least to do the basics I'm talking the basis. Just read the Bible. Read it and read it and read it. Unless you are willing to do that, you have no basis for even sitting here listening to this study, except to say, well, I was told this, but I don't know if it's true. The least you can do is check. Check. And so when I was in the bathroom, I, it was the men's bathroom. I remember coming into my head. I said, I'm so sincere about this, and I don't know how to convey it to people that they truly take it to heart and say, I'm going to start reading the Bible. Because pastors say it all the time. Oh, go home and read your Bible. And I am not that type of a person. I'm not going to tell you something unless I honestly, absolutely believe this is something that you should do, is read your Bible. Okay? It's that important. And it, it, it breaks my heart to have people pulling at their faces and worrying about, is it mid-trib rapture, or is it pre-trib rapture, or is it post-trib rapture? All these things, because they're not willing to simply look at the proper context of who gave the rapture information, where it comes from. If you will just simply apply the basics, you will know which is correct, okay? After that, there's a lifetime of study in the Word, but there are basics. And if you are going to be a rapture seeker, okay, if that's what you're going to do, you need to know the basics of the rapture doctrine, okay? Um, I don't know what got me off on this tangent, but it's such an important thing to me that you read your Bible. You don't have to be the greatest scholar in the world. If you email me with a question like she had, I will do my very best to give you an answer that I believe is full and complete so that you don't walk away saying, well, I'm not sure anymore. Now she can know that guy is wrong, okay? I didn't get all the other things that, you know, she said, I've heard this. You know, Sergio, one person, uh, she said, I heard one Messianic person said that it means that the covenant is splendous. It has become more splendid. And the word gabar, I mean, it, it means to prevail. It means strengthen. But he's saying that it makes it more, uh, and she gave a context which didn't fit that particular uh, I, I wish I had written that down because I maybe I'll use that in uh, chapter 2 uh, because it will probably refer to Daniel in that. But, uh, you know... It, there is a word, Gwarat Adonai, it's like the, some I think translation splendor of God, but right. it would be more like strength of God, it would be more accurate. Right, strength. And this one is a verb, okay? It's not a noun. And a lot of translations will say he will make a strong covenant. That's a noun. Okay, it, it is a verb that is being used. Okay, so you've got uh, verbs and nouns and they have to be kept separately. So when somebody says he will make a strong covenant, that's not what the Hebrew is saying. He's, it is a word that means it's doing something. That's what verbs are. So he is making, he is making, uh, you know, a, he's strengthened covenant or he's making a whatever. But you have to use the right 
um, what do you call it, noun, verb, uh, what do you call those things, um, whatever. You have to use the right word in the right context. So, um, and I went through all the translations and I looked at them and there's so many that didn't even get it as a verb. They put it as a noun. And so immediately that biases somebody's thinking when they see that because they're not even using the word properly. It's like in Isaiah 14 where uh, they say that obviously this is speaking of Satan, okay, in Isaiah 14. And in the Hebrew, it's a pronoun, okay? And then they translate it into the Latin. The word Lucifer is a Latin word. It's not a Hebrew word. So you're doing that and all of a sudden you're taking that and you're saying Lucifer, which simply means light bearing, and then they say, well, that's speaking of the devil. And all of a sudden, everybody thinks that that passage is speaking of the devil when it doesn't even match what's being said in the Hebrew. So once again, always have to go steadily and study. If you believe something, question, why do I believe this? Um, he asked me a question today. After you emailed, I probably spent an hour on it before Burke got here. Is uh, He was having a debate with somebody about John 3, 16 through 18. Is that Jesus speaking or is that uh, John writing what uh, theological treaties, okay, for God so loved the world. So you got Jesus speaking, does it turn into John? And then it goes down a little further and it introduces John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist seems to go into the same type of third person speech. So it's saying that this is uh, 16 through 18. John down here is speaking and then it's a third person analysis, John reading that, okay, and you could, you could assume that, and a lot of people hold that position, but you could also say there is no change in the terminology by John. He doesn't say, let me now introduce this, or Jesus stopped speaking. It's one continuous thing. And so, which is it? Okay, it's going to take more study on my part, but I read... That it, the reason why I'm saying this is because when you asked me that, I had never thought of that, ever. I just assumed that it was Jesus speaking, and so I went and I started looking through it, and there are scholars that hold both views, one view or the other, okay? And they both had reasonable arguments, but the main thing with me is, one guy said, here's a chiasm, and he, he made a chiasm out of John, and it goes into John chapter 4, and he says, well, this is a third-person speech, and this is a third-person speech, and therefore it is John writing and not... But He's using a fallacy because we don't know if John the Baptist is using third-person speech or if John the evangelist is writing it. So he just, he takes this and he says this, but he doesn't prove this. Right. So I, 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 I'm not going to be dogmatic about that particular issue until I have studied it more. But the point that I'm making is at least I'm willing to now check. So tying this all together, the whole thing came up not about 316, it was about chapter 15 in John, where right. it says, I've chosen you. Right. So this was a Calvinist saying that, like, oh, you see, God chose them. It's like... Who is he speaking to? Okay. It doesn't matter. Well, I, it, I understand that. I understand. Yeah. But so, but then we, we, I said he's addressing Jews. He's addressing people under the law. And he goes, well, then obviously you think that, that 316 is, is, not, is like... It's, it's being spoken before the cross and before the resurrection. And it was just like, I'm sitting there, I stopped, and I go, gosh, it's like, he's got a point. 
And but it's like know your Bible, go look at it, and, and then study dig deeper. And think about when it, it starts to like yeah. get. But weird. that that thing about John chapter fifteen, that oh, is yeah. irrelevant. Yeah, I, I agree. That is completely irrelevant. He that, jumped. Yeah, and it, I'm like, he made like, he made a great great leap in there, and he, he, I chose you, does not mean that they have to comply. Correct. It, it does not in any way. I Plus, agree. he's not saying that about Hedico, and he's not saying it about Mark, and he's not saying it about me. Right. He's saying it about his apostles right or is yes. <laughs> yes and guess what one of them did right so there you go right. anyway um Anyhow, know uh, your bible yeah read your bible and when you come across something that's difficult don't just dismiss it because what i could have done is just said well of course it's jesus and left it at that right. Right. but i'm not going to do that you've asked the question now i need to research it okay it's and that's what you do perplexing. yeah it is just perplexing and it could be that jesus is the one that's speaking it it could be that John is the one that is writing it. And real intelligent scholars on both sides of the aisle give their arguments for or against it. Right. And I just gotta sit and digest them and, and uh, think about it. But don't just blow things off and say, well, it doesn't. Now, my point was, ultimately, it does not matter it's, at all. I agree. At all, and the reason why is because all scripture is inspired mm -hmm. by God. And so it is the words. So you can't say, well, that's not Jesus speaking, and so it doesn't pertain, blah, blah, blah. It is God speaking through John if it's not Jesus personally speaking it. Either way, it is the Lord who is giving that word. So ultimately, the argument doesn't matter as far as what that is concerned. Yeah, salvifically, it's, yes, it's, it's it, solid. But thanks for looking into that. Yeah, I yeah. And that. I've got it all here. I opened up 25 different tabs <laughs> and with an iPad, that's not easy. And the computer at home, I could could have done it all in five minutes. It took me like four hours because I... Sorry. This, I no, no, no. I wanted to know. I just, I did. But anyway, once again, please read your Bible. Don't just say, oh, Charlie's saying that. Please read your Bible. It, it's that important to me that people will actually not get pulled astray by bad doctrine, mm -hmm. especially when it can be deduced from one or two or maybe three reads through the Bible. There are things that you will read the Bible 50 times and still question, sure. but please read your Bible. Okay, so, yes, <laughs> after his introduction, Paul says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This same address is used in both 1 and 2 Thessalonians, with the exception of the word our, which is used here. He addresses the church as a whole here instead of the more common term to the saints or to the brethren that he uses in many other letters. The unique term, in God our Father, is probably used to ensure that there is a distinction made between God the Father and God the Son. Okay, because people always take things out of their context. If you say one thing, then, well, Jesus isn't God. And if you say two things, then, well, Jesus is God, but he was created first. And, you know, you, you can come up with anything unless you have the full sense of what is being said. So he said, in God our Father, okay? In 1 Thessalonians 1, he said that, he said in verse 1, 9, that the church turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. By making a distinction between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is demonstrating that both are God. But there is more than one person in the Godhead. And yet, their worship of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is not pagan polytheism. And so he's making a great, great distinction there as he does all the way through his epistles. 
Just because there is a distinction in the Godhead, it does not mean that there are two gods or that we serve a triad, which we do not. Okay, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you. You're serving a triad, three gods, and people don't know how to defend against that. But it's very simple. We serve one God. That is what the Bible teaches. It does, however, teach that God has within himself a fullness that we can't fully comprehend. We can't understand it. But once again, the best example I've ever seen of it is time. It's such a simple thing. Now, time is a linear thing. God is outside of time, but he created time for our our benefit. And time is one thing, but it consists of future, present, and past all at the same time. Okay, and as soon as you are in the present, now you've gone into the past. I mean, it's just, it's a continuous thing. You can get a sense of the Godhead by looking at time. Okay, as a matter of fact, if you compare the future to the Father, you compare the, compare the present to Jesus, and you compare the past to the Holy Spirit, the same roles are seen in each of them. Where do we get our learning from, our help, our comfort from? Where do we get that from? We get it from the past. We have experienced experienced something and now we dwell on it and we learn from it, okay? But in scripture, we get that from the Holy Spirit. He is the one that teaches us all things, okay? God the Son presents something and then the Holy Spirit illuminates it to us. So as soon as we experience something, we are now learning in the past, from the past, what we have learned, okay? So if you just take the time to look at how time is presented. It's one thing, but it's presented in three different things from a different perspective, okay? And there's always a future, there's always a present, there's always a past. They never go away, ever, from the moment that God created them. Once again, God is not created, but he has given us an example of what occurs in time so that we can understand more fully what he is doing outside of time. And you'll never see the Father and you'll never predict the future. That's right, you will never see the Father and the only way that you will know the future is by his revelation of it in advance. That's the only way it will ever happen. You're not gonna predict it if it is not given in scripture, okay? So, um, let's see here, he addresses the church as a whole. I said that, God the Father. Um, Oh yeah, it demonstrates that both are God, but there's more than one person in the Godhead. And yet, their worship of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is not pagan polytheism. The two are one in essence, and yet there is an order within the Godhead by which access is made available. Without Christ Jesus, there is no access to God the Father. He is the mediator between the two. Pagan idolatry from which they had turned is not the same as what is presented in the Christian faith, not in any way, shape, or form. Paul's introductory words are carefully chosen for them and thus for us to learn and to remember what is right and appropriate in the worship of God. Throughout Paul's, and you know what? A lot of people get into all kinds of crazy things about the Trinity or about the nature of God. And that's because they don't stick with the basics, which are what God has showed us in the Word. If you stick with the Word, you will be able to deduce these things. When you start theorizing too much, you can get way, way, way away from what God has presented in the Word, okay? There's nothing wrong with thinking outside of the Bible. There's nothing wrong with laying things out that are in accord with the Word. 
But when you start reaching into things that the Bible does not explicitly or implicitly teach, you're going to come up with crazy ideas about the nature of God. And that happens all the time. So uh, you have to be careful with uh, how people theorize about the nature of God. If it doesn't square up with what is said in Scripture, stay away from it. Okay, it's just going to confuse you and it's going to have you go down funny paths. Anyway, his introductory words are carefully chosen for us to learn from, to remember what is right and appropriate in the worship of God. Throughout Paul's letters, as with the entire Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ is a concept and it is a precept which is on evident display. It is the very heart of what God has done for the reconciliation of the people of the world. He did not create a being and send him to the earth to die. God did not do that. He did not create a being in the womb of Mary. Valinarianism. Valent Valentinarianism. Okay? He didn't do that. All right? He did not. Um, there's so many heresies. We could go on all day with these things. Okay? Uh, Jesus Christ is fully this is the point of what Scripture is telling us. God was willing to do what we cannot do to bring us back to himself. How did he do it? He did not create anything in the process. He united with human flesh, okay? But he did, it says in the book of Hebrews, that you made a body for me. You prepared a body for me, all right? That does not mean that Jesus Christ is created. What that means is that God took all of Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 all the way down until the time of Jesus, and he prepared a body. That's why those genealogies are listed there. That's why the names are listed there. This person is included in what is going to become the Messiah of the world. This person is included in that. Lot, Abraham, Sarah, Terah, all of these people are included. Both of Lot's daughters are included in Jesus' genealogy. All of these people are included in there. God is preparing a body for Jesus. You got that? It's not that God created Jesus as they want to insert into the book of Hebrews. God prepared a body out of humanity. Thus, he is the seed of David. Okay? To say that Jesus was created in the womb of Mary is a heresy because then he would not be of the seed of David. See the logic there? It says explicitly that he is of the seed of David. In fact, the promise to David makes it absolutely impossible for it to be any other way. But this is what Jacob Presh teaches, okay? He teaches that Jesus was created in the womb of Mary. That is a heresy, as I said. It's called Valentinarianism or Valen, I, whatever. Um, you got to be careful with what people teach. If he was created, he is not the son of the seed of David. He is not of the line of David. He is not of the line of Abraham. He was, it doesn't mean that he's not God, but at the same time, it means that he is not what was promised in scripture. So be very careful what you believe and who you listen to, because these things are really actually important. He is fully God. He is fully man. Jesus was a human being. I'm sorry, Mary was a human being. God is God. When the two come together, it is the God-man. Everything produces, page one of Genesis, everything produces after its own kind. Okay, that's why we have apples from apple trees. 
And God was on the very first page of the Bible giving us a lesson about what he was going to do in the person of Jesus Christ. If I am his father, and that's what the Bible says, God the Father, and if Mary is his mother, which is what the Bible says, then he is human, he is God, he is the God-man. He was giving us that lesson at the very, very beginning, okay? Even before he introduced man, he introduced the fact that everything reproduces after its own kind, okay? So, um, yes, life application. Honest daily Bible study is hard work. It takes time and it takes effort. In today's world, many people who come to 2 Thessalonians do so in order to read the end time events verses, which are especially noted in chapter 2. They then use those verses to build an entire theology on rapture-related biblical theology, taking the time to read and comprehend the entire Bible. It may be a large challenge, but it will help solidify one's theology and keep the individual from error in the various disciplines found in Scripture. I would challenge you to find out how many people, your friends around the world, maybe on Facebook or some other way, you can challenge them. How many believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? How many believe in a mid-tribulation rapture? And how many believe in a post-tribulation rapture? And then ask them, why do you believe that? And they're not going to be able to give you an answer. They'll give you all kinds of information about that, and they're not going to be able to tell you why they believe it. I was told, and that's what I believe. So if you happen to show up in a church that was mid-tribulation, that's what you're going to be for the rest of your life. You're going to be a mid-tribber because you've got nothing else to go on. Unless you say, well, you know, I like what he says about the pre-tribulation rapture because I want to be out of here before the tribulation period. And so when you're in another church and you hear that, you change your theology without knowing why, other than that you like what it says, okay? If you don't have that, that overall knowledge of Scripture, you're not going to have any idea why you believe what you believe. You just believe it because you were told it, and you've got verses that you use to support it, whether they're in context or not, and you have no idea if that's the case. Please, please, please read your Bible. Okay, don't get so caught up in end times events that you miss out on the bigger picture. It's a very small part of what God is doing is the end of the church age. That's a teeny little part of the redemptive plan. Teeny. Okay, it's an exciting one. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I get excited just talking about it, but it's such a small part and it's the total focus of some people. The total focus. Okay, uh, one, two. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh no, this one says grace to you and peace from God our Father. <laughs> oh no. I know. Yeah, okay, there you go. Um, after identifying himself and those with him, and then who the letter is directed to, Paul now gives the standard greeting which is found in most of his epistles. Grace to you and peace to you. Okay, which epistle is it definitely not found in? Well, that's not signed by Paul, so I don't want to... Let me take you to the beginning of Galatians. He was, you can tell he was really miffed at him. <laughs> he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. Okay, now, he made a point of saying that. Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor, uh, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Read three. I, I, I know, I, I'll get to that. Okay. I will get to that. 
but he doesn't. Okay. Um, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was wrong about what I was going to tell you, but there's something else he leaves out of Galatians. Uh, let me think of what it was. Um, uh, go back to 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, to the church in Thessalonica's. Uh, okay, churches in uh, Galatia. There's one thing he left out of uh, Galatians, and I uh, highlighted that when we were in the book of Galatians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Okay. Paul, he doesn't give the name of other people to the church of uh, Galatia and the church of Thessalonica. Grace to you and peace. Um, oh, yeah, he gives that. And um, I think that it's he expands on the grace and peace. And there he simply says, um, grace to you and peace from, what was it? There's something that I said. I'll have to look it up now. I'm glad you saw that because um, I was going to see that, say that he skipped that in the Galatians, but he didn't. But there is something else that he left out. It might be mercy, um, which he says elsewhere. Um, what was it? He says, Paul, an apostle uh, to the saints, grace to you and peace from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever. There's something he left out in the Galatians, and you can tell that he was highly miffed at them because of that. But I'm not seeing it right now. I'm glad you said go down to verse 3 because I was going to say that was it, and it's not. Um, anyway, so um, he identifies himself and those with him. And he says, grace to you and peace to you. Grace is unmerited favor. It cannot be earned. This is the common greeting among the Greek people. They would walk around and they'd say, grace to you. Okay. Peace, however, is the common greeting among the Hebrew people. In their language, the word is shalom. This is more than a greeting for calm or quiet, but it is a state of wholeness and completion in all ways. When you say shalom to somebody, it's more than just what we would say peace to you. You know, we think of, oh boy, peace baby, and you know, whatever, the 60s hippies. That's not what it is. It's a full state of wholeness to a person. Okay, Paul unites these two terms just as the church is being united between Jew and Gentile during his time. The grace precedes the peace because only after receiving the grace of God can a person experience the peace of God. Paul extends this wonderful blessing to them, his words, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a greeting from the eternal God, both the unseen Father and his Son, who reveals the Father to us. Rather than being an argument against the divinity of Jesus Christ, it is an argument for it. He is tying the two in as one, Jesus being a member of the Godhead. He is not making some type of great division between the two, but rather a harmonious blending of the two. Um, where am I now? That's 1-1. One, one. Boy, this is a short commentary here. Throughout Paul's letters, as with the entire Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ, I said this in the last verse, I'm saying it again. It is a concept and it is a precept which simply cannot be missed. It is the very heart of what God has done for the reconciliation of the people of the world. God himself is the one that took the onus upon himself to redeem his people, okay? If you can't understand that or if you disagree with it, you have a serious deficiency in your theology. The Lord is salvation, it says in the book of Jonah. The Lord, not something he created, not someone he sent along, not something that we need to participate in in any way, shape, or form. The Lord himself is salvation. He is the one that provides it. He makes the way available. And all we have to do is accept his premise, his 
you know, what he lays forth for us. And if we do that, then we will be saved. That is it. Life application. Outside of God's creation, which reveals him in a general way, we cannot comprehend him except through his special revelation. One way we receive special revelation is through the mouths of his prophets. But these prophets all testified to the same thing, Jesus Christ. That is found in John 5, 39. Okay, he says it explicitly. They're writing about me. They're telling about me. He's specifically speaking of Moses at the time. But it is a truth that the entire Old Testament is a continuation of Moses. Moses is the first five books, but then what did Joshua do? He took and he entered words into the book. And then uh, Samuel added to them. And all of the people that followed after them are speaking out under the law. They're speaking out under the law. Everything is pointing to the coming of Jesus. All of it. Okay, John 5.39, and he says it down again, I think, in John 5.46. I can't, we'll go there right now, just so we have it. Um, it's here. John... And he says here, that's, uh, where am I, John 5.15, that's 6. Okay, John 5.39, he says, uh, you search the scriptures, the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify. Believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So everything, the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus, because Jesus is God. It's, you know, it's incomprehensible to me that the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is not God. What would be the point of all of Scripture pointing to something that isn't God? Why would he do that? God gets the glory except in the whole body of literature called the Holy Bible? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what they tell you. Um, Okay, uh, the most magnificent special revelation of God that we have received is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But for us, even this is not sight. It is found in the testimony of those who have recorded what they knew into the New Testament. Has anybody here seen Jesus? No, we haven't. And if you say you have, go check yourself in down at the Palms. It's on Orange Avenue because he, is, he has manifest himself. In the book of Colossians, it says he manifest. He did it one time, and the intent of what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians is that he will manifest himself again at a certain time, and not before that, okay? That is the way that it is. Jesus Christ has not appeared to any person alive today. And if anybody makes that claim, then they are not thinking clearly, or they're making it up, or doing whatever people like to do, okay? It is not sight that we have. We live by faith, not by sight. So, in order to understand God, one must know Jesus Christ, and one cannot understand Jesus Christ unless that person knows his Bible. Today's life application? Know your Bible. Know your Bible. There you go. Okay, Read verse 3. Okay, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Okay, that's completely differently worded, but it says essentially the same thing. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Okay, a completely different. It is, but, yeah. the, 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 but the intent is the same, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Before you jump in there, 
Okay. Grace and peace is in all of them. Okay, yeah, there's something in Galatians that is not. There's something he, and I highlighted that in the book of Galatians when we did it. Well, and he uses mercy and Timothy. Mercy. That's in Timothy. Yeah. Both first and second. I'm not sure it's in yep. the other. But. Yeah, there's something I highlighted, and I don't remember what it was, but it, at the it was. closing. Yeah, it could be at the closing, you, too. You I, have, I, I wrote down Shemeth, not good at all. And. There was some be good do do good to all people, especially. I'm not sure if that had any relation. To I don't it, but, know. It could have been. There's something I highlight in there that you could just tell Paul is miffed. But through the whole thing, you can tell Paul's miffed well, at. Sure. He's just very right upset the, the way that he speaks to them, and he's saying, you know, I can't believe that you're allowing this to happen. I talked to you about this. You received the Spirit, and now you're trying to earn God's favor after having received the Spirit. I mean, the whole thing is just. Anyway, um, I don't remember what it was, and I could be completely wrong. It may be something that just popped into my head that was wrong. But anyway, I, I'm certain that there was something in Galatians that he doesn't do there that he does elsewhere. Okay. okay? And, and I'm, thank you for doing that because I wasn't really sure, and I would have spent all night doing that. So anyway, eventually, maybe I'll just go back and look at the Galatians commentary, and I'll find it. It's whatever. Anyway, 1-3, um, we read the, uh, the comment, or I'm sorry, the verses, and... Uh, after his introductory thoughts, Paul now begins the main portion of his epistle. In this he states, his words, we are bound to thank God always for you. The word translated as bound is ophelio. It means indebted. It originally belonged to the legal sphere. This is helps word studies, not my words. It originally belonged to the legal sphere. It expressed initially one's legal and economic and then later one's moral duties and responsibilities to the gods and to men, or to their sacrosanct regulations. Ophelio expresses human, I'm sorry, Ophi, yeah, Ophi, that's right, Ophelio uh, expresses human and ethical responsibility in the New Testament. Okay, so think of that. Uh, human and ethical responsibility, we are bound, we are ethically responsible to this. We are bound to thank God always for you. He's thankful for their faith, and rather than just being thankful in himself, he thanks God for it, okay? He's bound to it. Paul is noting that he and his associates are actually indebted to God for those at Thessalonica. The reason for this will be explained in a minute, but first he calls them brethren. As always, Paul makes note of the inclusive nature of the Christian faith for those who are the redeemed of the Lord. It is only to them that he writes, but his words are also intended to lead, lead others to that same faith where they too will, hopefully, be included in the term brethren. Okay, what I just said so you understand it is that when Paul uses the word brethren, he is only writing to believers. He's not speaking of anybody else, unlike the Pope, that calls everybody brethren and implies that they're all one in God, regardless of their religion or their religious affiliation or whatever, which is completely, completely separated from the thinking of Paul in Scripture. When he says brethren, he's speaking only to believers. But that does not mean that only believers can read what Paul writes. That's what I'm saying. The word brethren is only addressed to people that are in Christ. However, hopefully, the people that read his epistles that are not brethren will become brethren. That's right. That's exactly right. So, you want to make sure you know the difference. Yes? Romans 1.14 says, I'm under obligation 
obligation. To all people, he says, to the barbarians and the wise and the Greeks, you know, all, all and the foolish I'm under, to tell them. About That's the everybody Jesus. needs to hear the message. Everybody needs to hear the message. It doesn't matter who they are. And once again, uh, the the thing that some people should not be evangelized because XXX is totally incorrect. Now, I will say that it's maddening that some people are just so reprobate in their thinking that they have complete re completely rejected any idea of a relationship with God. Okay, and they, the government is full of people like that. Okay, and the people that follow them yeah. are there, but that does not mean that they should not be evangelized. It just means that there's very little chance of them ever, ever accepting your premise that Jesus Christ is the Savior and He's the only way to heaven. Okay, they they've come to the point where they're you know, and Paul speaks about it, having a seared conscience, and they've completely cut themselves off from any possible relationship with the Lord. But that does not mean that you shouldn't at least give them the gospel. Okay, so. Um, now, I've been struggling with something that happened with me this past week, and I, you know, it's very hard to talk to a person that's drunk. When somebody is drunk, every, or a drunk, I should say, not just drunk, but a drunk, they're, they're, that's their life, okay? Every drunk person I've ever talked to, bar none, believes in Jesus. Oh, I love, you know, every one of them, every single one of them. And so it's very hard to talk to them because they're already absolutely certain that they're in right with the Lord. But this past week, it's just been eating me up all week because there's this guy, he's walking around in his underpants behind the mall on, um, on uh, must have been Wednesday morning, we'll say, uh, Tuesday, because today's only Thursday. And he's, he's just completely stoned. He's completely stoned. And so he... Uh, was like walking around and he was talking and I'd say yes and then I'd walk away and he just would, kept talking and he'd walk away and he's just still talking. And so um, he uh, eventually I got done behind the mall. I took out the garbage, cleaned 7-Eleven, got behind 7-Eleven. I'm separating all the recycles out behind 7-Eleven and he walks up again and he says um, something like, have you got your night or your sainthood yet or something? I'm like, I, I had no idea what he's saying. This guy apparently used to work right down the road at Pepper Tree Bay, okay? And he remembered me. Do you still have that Jesus van? Remember the, the, yeah, yeah. the, and he, so he remembered my name, but he couldn't remember the name of the place that he worked at. And I could not remember him for the life of me. I couldn't remember this guy for the life of me, but he's in his underwear. He's completely stoned. And I'm thinking, Lord, should I have talked to him about Jesus? I, he at least remembered that I'm a preacher. Right? He, and he, but it was years ago. He said, oh, it's years ago, you know. And so I thought, I know that if I talk to him, when he's drunk, he's, it was just raving drunk. I know that he was, oh, I know Jesus. And there's a point where you're just speaking words and there's nothing being received. But I've been saying all week, I hope I see that guy again. And he is sober. You know, I just, I, I hate to think that this guy used to have a job. He was working out on the key with somebody. And now he's, I don't know what he was taking, whether it was crack or, I have no idea, but he was completely out of his mind. And it's just been eating me alive that somebody would allow himself to just come to that state in life. 
you know, and it breaks my heart. And I just, I just keep thinking, I hope I see him again. I hope I see him again, you know, with at least some pants on next time. I mean, it just. <laughs> that I, would be a good sign. He might be straight. I just, I, the whole thing has just had me eaten up all week long. It's just terrible. Yeah, I, you it, know. It's, it's a missed opportunity. It's like, you know, you're, you're but, I, that, but it hurts when you think about that. Yeah. You go, I'd like to do this over. And like, yeah, you know, but, well, but you know, I, like I said, if I talk to it'd be just like talking to the drunk people in the projects. Yep. They all know Jesus already. And what happens is then they start overriding you yeah. with their comments about how saved they are. And they just, they, 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 they just continue with it. And there's no end to it. So there's a point where, you, you know, it's not productive. To talk to somebody and I knew he was at that point and yet at the same time I just feel so bad that this human being has gone from a guy working to a guy that's walking around in his underwear you know completely out of his mind well I don't know I mean I've never seen him before so I mean it's been years since he worked out there and he couldn't remember anything but he remembered that I was a preacher that's just it bothers me it just really bothers me anyway um, uh, so uh, let's hear brethren. Okay, brethren. Following this, he explains the reason for the debt of thanks, which they owe to God by start stating that it is fitting. That's Paul's words. It is fitting that they give this thanks. He just said that we're bound to give this thanks. Now he says it's fitting. What he will say concerning them demonstrates that thanks is not just something which is haphazardly offered to God without purpose and intent but rather it is something which is right and good to offer because it is a response to something more positive and wonderful which has come about within the church. This special occurrence is, as he says, because your faith grows exceedingly. Okay, I see people that have started out just meeting Jesus and they just grow and they grow and they want to learn more and they are, they just, and that makes my heart rejoice exactly what Paul is saying. I say, oh, thank God. that these... And then you see people that start out good and they turn and they go down some crazy avenue. And you think, how did that happen? But when somebody is towing the line and holding fast to the Lord, studying the word and is so interested in what the word says, I'm going to start taking Hebrew. I'm, you know, uh, one guy uh, emailed me this week. I won't give his name or anything because I don't know if I can say this, but he's moving to Japan to be a missionary. And I'm just so excited for him. And I, he's going with no help, nothing. He's just going. I won't give any of the circumstances because, uh, you know, I don't have permission. But I, I'm so excited that this guy that's been watching the sermons for years now emailed. And, and he's, he's got a way of getting there. I won't, you know, anyway. But he's, he's committing himself to this. And I'm just so excited. I'm so excited for him. That means the world to me that there are people out there that have just started out and they've just... They're, they're continuing to grow. They're not just stagnating, stagnating in their walk with the Lord. Um, so um, it's fitting that he gives thanks, okay? Um, this special occurrence is, as he says, this is uh, Paul's words too, this special occurrence is, as he says, because your faith grows exceedingly, just like I was talking about with my friend. The believers at Thessalonica didn't just profess faith in Christ and then stagnate, as so commonly happens in churches even since the very beginning. Instead, they had faith, and their faith increased. They desired to know more and more about this marvelous God who would step out of eternity's realm in order to redeem fallen man unto himself. What a marvelous thing for the hearts of Paul and his companions to know that their labors were not only not in vain, but that they were magnified. 
But even further, he continues that the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. They're not just crazy about Jesus, but they're willing to be uh, content with each other. Their love is abounding among each other. And, you know, I I don't want to say too much about the church. We got people that attend online and, and uh, they're so important to me, like what we talked about at the beginning, the lady that passed away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, in the church, just us here on, uh, especially on Sunday morning, you know, I've never been, and this is just me, and it may just be because I'm partial, but I've never been in a church where I think, there's such fellowship. I just don't remember having been in a church like that. Um, I do remember being at the one with Pastor Ross, and they had great, uh, what do you call it, um, when everybody, potluck. You know, that'll get anybody happy. Uh, I mean, everybody's trying to outdo everybody else with their cooking, but the fellowship itself was not that great, okay? Whereas I... I just don't know anybody here that really doesn't like anybody else or that doesn't want to be around anybody else. That doesn't mean they're doing stuff after church, but that everybody is content with everybody else. And I'm so happy about that. Uh, we were talking about that at lunch today is that, you know, it's it's so nice to be in a church where people are not, you know, this guy said this and this guy said this. And I, I, I'm so thankful for the group of people that shows up here and that is willing to just put the word in Jesus first. But anyway, um, let's see here. Um, yeah, they were uh, in love with the Lord, and they were, uh, as Paul says, the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Uh, this is something which must have truly enlightened their hearts. The faith of the church had grown exceedingly. But it wasn't a faith which was found in individuals who independently grew in holiness. Instead, it was a faith which was shared between all at the church as they grew in love. This would mean that each had the best intent for the others in mind, and they would be there to build one another up in times of weakness, times of trial, sadness, and so on. They would remain strong and also Christ-directed because of this common bond of love, which was both strong and strengthening among among one another. What is even more wonderful for Paul and his friends was that this is exactly what they admonished the church in the first letter to them. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said, uh, verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. He had hoped it would be the case, and it is the case, and he's so excited about it. Those words, along with Paul's other exhortations, in his first letter were acted upon and they had taken root. Increased faith and abounding love had become the hallmark trait of his beloved church in Thessalonica. So wonderful. He's so thankful for it. And you can see it's just the opposite of Galatians. I don't know. I'm still, I'm trying to get this out of my head, what it is that Paul, there's something that he did that he didn't do elsewhere, but he, uh, uh, you can tell he's just, you guys have just thrown everything away because of what these people are telling you. Please come back to the right walk. He doesn't have to do this with the Thessalonians. And you know, the funny thing is that the Thessalonians were not very noble in relation or in comparison to the Bereans. But we don't have a letter to the Bereans because it wasn't necessary. They were already grounded in the word. And so they obviously did all of these things and Paul didn't have to give them any exhortation. He didn't. He probably just stopped by on his way didn't even record it in the book of Acts. He said, guys, you're doing a great job. 
I'm on my way to, you know, Thessalonica or down to whatever Corinth and, and, uh, but it was unnecessary because they were already grounded in the word. But Paul is so thankful for the Thessalon Thessalonians because they had gotten established in the word and had grown in the word. It just, he's so excited. Life happens. Oh, yes. He gets to open up other things that, oh, yeah. that, like, I mean, what we're about to get into about the man of lawlessness. It's Absolutely. Like, you know, it's like, okay, you, you're not admonishing him. So, oh, well, I got you. Let me just, like, yeah. Let me say, give you, you know, comfort and peace. They and ask questions, and he's like, don't you remember? I told you. And, yeah, absolutely. Life application. What is the state of your church? Is there great faith among the congregants? Do you even know? Could you rely on them if things were to go sour in your life? Could they rely on you? Do you have a shared love which is growing with each passing week? Or do you just show up, spend your time as if a chore is being completed, and then follow it up with a quick exit and without care, without a care what transpires in the lives of the others in the week ahead? Think on this, and then set your mind to be a more active part in your church. It is only a fellowship if you are there to fellowship. Okay, we, uh, we yeah, well, good. I'm glad I did something right today. Thank you. Um, I got to uh, uh, close there because we only got four minutes left, and uh, uh, I don't know how that happened because it seemed I looked up and it was you know of, quarter after, and a lot I thought of it was, holes. We just went through. I, a lot I don't of, remember any good. of it. You know, somebody will email me. My friend out, and I won't say where. Don't want to embarrass him, but he emailed me a week ago, and he said, "What was it you were talking about there?" And I said, "I don't even know what you're talking about." And he, I said, just tell me what it is. And he says, well, you got the video there. I said, I'm not watching an hour-long video or an hour-and-a-half-long video to find out what you're referring to. I said, if you want to know, go tell me what time it is, and I'll tell you. But I, what it, we get talking, and it, it just comes out, and, and I love it because it's it's not as structured as the, uh, the uh, Sunday church, but the Sunday church is a completely different uh, dynamic, and so it needs to be that way. But I really love these classes because we get to talk about things, and... All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to just share uh, your word with wonderful people that are willing to listen and to uh, absorb and hopefully to check. I would pray, Lord, that each person here has a burden on their heart to just be willing to read your word, to make it their priority. If there's nothing else in our life that we can make a priority, we certainly can make your word a priority. We know we have to go to work. We know that we have to take out the dogs. We have things that need to be done every single day. But unless we make the word our priority, it will never be our priority. So please put it on their hearts to do so. And Lord, thank you for it. And thank you above all for Jesus, who is the one revealed in your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, say goodbye to the folks, and I'll pack this thing up. And goodbye, folks. Goodbye, folks. Let's see here. Uh, we're going to go to break. All right.